Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 76 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a big-name interview show every Monday, just like this one, and short four- or five-minute daily episodes released Tuesday through Sunday on a show I call This Day Rocks. If this is your first time listening, then please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day, And the only way to get all the episodes is on the Vintage Rock Pod feed, so give us a like or subscribe separately on there, please. It is absolutely free. Now, I had great feedback from last week's big interview show with former Hanoi Rocks lead singer Michael Munro, so thank you to everyone who reached out following that one, especially, though, to uh, Melissa Curson, who said it's one of the best interviews she'd ever heard with Michael, and she's a big fan. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you for the kind words. If you haven't already checked out that interview, then please do go and listen to episode 75. Give it a spin. It's a great one for sure. As for today's guest then, well, we're harking back to the late 60s. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. Yes, Mr. Arthur Brown is my guest on this week's show, known the world over as the God of Hellfire. As part of the crazy world of Arthur Brown, he had a smash hit all over the globe in 1968 with Fire. The song went to number one in the UK and Canada and number two in the US. It's a million seller and was produced by the Who legend Pete Townsend. Plus, Arthur's good friend Jimi Hendrix had a hand in pushing radio stations to play the song too. The album it came from, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, was also a big hit going top 10 around the world. Now, Arthur has continued to release music, tour and innovate all the way through his career. and He's worked with some of the biggest names around for decades. And despite turning 80 years old this year, has just released even more new music. A few months ago, he released Long, Long Road. And now, just in time for Halloween, as you'd expect, is a great album called Monster's Ball. Now, I got an early copy of this and it's genuinely a top Halloween treat. The production on it is excellent and to make it even better... It's got an incredible list of guests that have taken part, something that really excited me when I found out. Appearing on this new record, Monster's Ball, is none other than Ian Pace from Deep Purple, Stooges guitarist James Williamson, Vanilla Fudge's Mark Stein and Carmine Apiece, both former guests on the show, as is the damned drummer Rat Scabies, who also appears on the record. You've also got Shuggy Otis, Alan Davey and Nick Turner from Hawkwind, and many others as well. It's a fantastic lineup of guests that Arthur has managed to get together for this new record. The first single released was a cover of the Sid Barrett-written Lucifer Sam from Pink Floyd, which also sounds great. So I felt I had to get Arthur on to talk about this record and, of course, about his career. We chat about those big names, the worldwide hit Fire, and about how he and good friend Jimi Hendrix almost formed a band together, plus much, much more. Now, when I spoke to him, he'd just driven a six-hour round trip as well, so a big thanks to Arthur for taking an hour out to chat with me after all that. So here you go. Please do enjoy my interview with the god of hellfire himself, Mr. Arthur Brown. So your new album, Monsters Ball, it's a set of ghoulish tunes with some incredible musicians that are joining you on this record. Now, you've not long ago released your last album, uh, Long Long Road, just a couple of months ago, in fact. So where did the idea for this ghoulish Monsters Ball album come from? From uh, Cleopatra Records, Brian, uh, The Helm, and John uh, John Lapin. And, and they, uh, I, I did a, a, a B-grade horror 
track for them in a movie. Oh, uh, probably mm, 2015 or something like that. So uh, on and off, I met uh, Brian, and uh, he has engaged uh, a, a person from the old Hawkwind band to do various musical things. But Brian is a very sort of resourceful man, and so he decided, hmm, I can see a, a, a thing for Arthur to do that people are probably going to really love. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll call upon various people that I do uh, things with to take part in this album. As a, and, and so there, there are all kinds of uh, people from uh, varying from, you know, uh, Brian Auger uh, and um, Carmen Napisi, Yep. Uh, at one end of the spectrum. And then uh, we started it off with a, an idea that we, we would do um, a uh, psychobilly-type approach. Okay. We did some of that and wrote a few songs, and then it, it switched over to Alan Davey, who was the one who had been in Hawkwind, and he yep. he has produced and played various instruments on different tracks and then uh, through that various of the the uh, space rock community of england have joined in and then uh, the guitar gentleman who, who was with the stooges yep he's also come in and and it's it's a, a great variety of really interesting styles and uh, great talented people and uh, fun music. Yes. And that kind of horror. <laughs> and then some, you know, some different things. There's, uh, one of them is, I think at least one of them is a version of uh, a very early Pink Floyd song. Yeah. And uh, they're all kind of spooky and uh, good for Halloween Absolutely. and good for... You know, dark evenings in winter when, <laughs> if you have a cellar in your house, you might want to bar the door. Yes, avoid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, as you and said, it's, it's, a, it's an and, album and, packed full of, of great musicians that have joined you on there. I've had a, a preview listen to the album, and the production work on it is superb. I must say, I'll get that out of the way first. Um, and, but just touching yes. on the track that you mentioned, uh, the, the track that came out first to, to the public, Lucifer Sam. It was the the Pink Floyd track. It was written by Sid Barrett. Um, yeah. Yes. You didn't mention Deep Purple's Ian Pace. He he performed on this with you as well. He as, was uh, Steve Hellmich. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And uh, it, it's an interesting song uh, because it doesn't have uh, a normal song structure. And of course, Sid was well known for mm-hmm. his experimental approach to everything. You can view the song how you want, really. And so I get to do, you know, the way I. Yep. like to sing it and um it was not a song that would have come to mind for me uh but when when i did hear it i thought oh yeah that that will fit in nicely in the whole picture 
It does indeed. It's it's an upbeat track. It kind of it rocks along. It rolls along all the way through. It's a fantastic opener to the album. But the album has some fantastic songs on there. And we've you've mentioned a few of the guests. I'll just run through a few more. You've, you've mentioned Carmine Apiece. You've got Mark Stein as well, both from Vanilla Fudge, of course. Rats yes. Gabies from The Damned. Uh, James Williamson, who you mentioned from The Stooges. Alan yeah. Davy and Nick Turner from Hawkwind. Jordan yes. from Dream Theater. Fernando Padermo, he worked on it as well. He's worked with Carmine. I mean, it is a heck of a lineup. So in terms of the, the the recording of the album then you obviously went into the studio to do your bits did you ever get to, to interact with with all these guys on on how different bits would be played or put together or or written or styled well with uh alan davy there was a lot of interplay uh with mr harvey who was the psycho billy beginning of it uh was a lot of interplay when the brian auger track with Carmen was uh, done. I did get to uh, uh, hang out with them a bit, and Brian reminded me that I still owed him a meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they were, I mean, sort of astonishing people from the, the a different uh, musical scene mm-hmm. uh, who w- were so adventurous in their time that they they fit in even now you know it, it's not uh something you you look back on uh as say something from the big swing era or that kind of thing no it fits right in with uh with with prog rock with all kinds of uh, different scenes yeah Absolutely, I and mean, we mentioned that obviously that you're famous for for the song "Fire." There's a another re-recording on on this album, isn't there? Why did you choose to to put that track onto this one? It was Brian who chose it. Okay, and uh, I think it was because he wanted to. Obviously, it, uh, it has a lot of fans that yes. song uh, in many camps, and so he thought, well, let's let them know it's a genuine. Arthur Brown's uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it? Fire is the calling card for at least all the crazy world input to the yeah. to the music I've been involved with. And it is spooky if you look on it that way. So uh, it, it seemed like an, uh, an obvious choice to <laughs> stamp the, the album with that. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of the finished product itself, I mean, the, the the vinyl sleeve, the artwork on it and everything like that just looks phenomenal. It's a brilliant visual as well as a great sounding record. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's that thing of uh, looking at the the album as, as a piece of art of its own. And uh, like when in the old days when you got one, through the mail you just open it and <sighs> indeed it's a fantastic record and um as we've got you on the line arthur it's uh it's only fitting to touch on the, the the huge single the iconic song the one that everybody knows it is something that strikes you and grabs you straight away and that is something that you did right from the start of your career and and obviously we're talking about the song fire and <laughs> i mean let's touch on i am the god of hellfire that intro that line that you came up with i mean can you remember how you thought of that or what gave you the inspiration to think of that line well uh obviously it was part of a a story really um and the, the opening track is somebody 
who in one sense has a nightmare dream, but in another sense is living a nightmare. And so uh, wants to find, how do I get out of this? And uh, so the, the, the imagery I, I developed was uh, certain gods come and speak to him. So you've got somebody falls into the flames. That's the nightmare result. So the, the flames are, on the one hand, the god of hellfire, who is going to, um, in order for you to be able to see that, still center all the crap in your nature has to be sieved out, if you like. And that's the, the job of the god of hellfire, <laughs> is, is to hold the, the pure flame, uh, but actually be tearing off the whatever inhibits you being able to live in that calm beauty, I suppose you'd call it. Um, And then there is, due to duality, the opposite of that. And so there's the god of sort of light, if you like, light and purifier. And that's a song called Come and Buy. So there were these figures on went on to both sides of the album. Uh, Track refused to put out the second side of the album and and uh, included spell on you and i got money and and uh, they felt that it needed some stage numbers okay and and nobody would want to listen to a whole album about fire and we argued <laughs> and argued and then eventually we, we did the the stage numbers, um, so it didn't have all the gods on it that were originally. Oh. And the, you've got the god of time. The, 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 you even had, uh, oh yes, and, uh, and one of the forces in in the world, which was a, a song about a teacher. I'm your teacher, children, and I'm going to be so kind to put into your mind what you need to know. I'm your teacher, too. And um, uh, that that was uh, a song about education. And, and uh, of course, I wore teachers' hats and all of that. So when I first started singing them, people were bewildered by it because it wasn't about love songs or, you know, what's happening down the factory or whatever. Yep. So I decided to wear costumes to fill it out. And, of course, there being this line, I'm the god of hellfire, you needed something <laughs> shocking. Yes. And it, it did sort of hark back to the uh, more primitive cultures and the the sort of the horned yes. helmet came out of yep. that. And then the idea of, yeah, okay, let's have flames coming out of my head now. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that, that was a very experimental thing because at the beginning it used to set fire to my clothes, <laughs> my, cl- my hair, the stage, the ceiling, etc. I was going to say, I mean, obviously back then, um, materials and compositions and things like that hadn't progressed to the point where it probably be fairly safe to do in a, in a way now. But back then, how did you, do you did you just did set a, put a match on it and let it go? Or what was the, what was the deal? Well, um, it started out as candles, uh, then okay. plate of petrol <laughs> with a screw, with a screw through it that, that went round, uh, it went through the, the plate 
through a strap with a with a buckle on it, which kept, but was a bit difficult because you can't really sing when you've got a strap. <laughs> yes. And um, and uh, the the flames, the plate used to wobble. And the things would spill all over. Of course, the audience loved that. <laughs> oh, he's look, he's caught fire. How incredible. <laughs> but, um, uh, and then gradually putting the, the wings at the side so that would hold it from wobbling like mm-hmm. that. And uh, gradually more and more d- d- different. We tried an electronic one. Um, and... Now we've got it sort of pretty much under control. Of course, in like you said, in those days there were there wasn't any health and safety no. as such. So you you could do all sorts of things, and uh, people wouldn't bat an eyelid. <laughs> things that today would be out of the question, or you you'd have to have you know like a million pounds insurance. <laughs> and I actually, in in reflection, due to all the uh, dreadful accidents that happened to people uh, on, on stage, it's good that we do have health and safety. And uh, we've managed to find a way where the flames are still quite astonishing. Yes. Uh, our last concert uh, they were six foot above my head wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then of course you've got the opposite end of the, the flame thing with Ramstein whose flames are 40 foot long yes, across the, yeah, the stage the you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> but there's something uh, primeval about being the god of hellfire having these flames coming out yeah. and uh, especially when sometimes I would do it at a certain point of the act and I didn't have, um, I had the makeup, the face makeup, the death mask it yep. used to be. Um, but I wouldn't have robes and things. And so the the idea of this guy looking reasonably normal in his clothes, <laughs> but with this makeup and the flames coming out of his face, Shouting, I'm the god of hellfire. <laughs> I mean, the, the, for some people, that was like a normal guy taunting. <laughs> and I remember having to be put on the floor of a cab and covered with carpets so that I could get out through, between the uh, 40 hell's angels who were waiting oh, wow. for my blood <laughs> <laughs> oh, <crikey. laughs> and, the, and the promoter said i don't want any more trouble get in this cab please <laughs> yeah, <and> go yeah. <laughs> uh, something i like to ask people when they've had such iconic songs like that i mean can you remember when you're in the studio when you got the song in the can could you could you tell at that time that wow this is this is this is big this is going to be a hit what was the case was um, it was the last song that we okay. put on the album it, it, because we could feel it needed a special energy and we didn't have it. And we finally found uh, uh, there was a couple of guys who used, who used to practice in the same place as Vincent Crane and myself. Yeah. And so they had a, a song 
and we liked part of it and we were influenced by it so we decided we'd put that in there but it was more if you like poppy than the bluesy jazzy stuff yeah. i was doing and so um when we first did it because it wasn't like the the other tunes I, it was like mm, yeah yeah it's good it's got energy but um Mm. And then we got so many people coming up to the end of our set and, you know, not all together separately. And and they were saying, I really like that song Fire you did. Didn't mention anything else, you know. <laughs> and and so we thought before we did it, oh, well, this, this stands a good chance of being popular amongst a lot of different kinds of people. And then, of course, with Kit Lambert and Peter Townsend producing it, yes. uh, that was the killer. And, and Pete was uh, very experimental, and, and Kit loved being excessive, you know, in, in a tasteful way, really. Well, we thought it was tasteful. Probably by <laughs> classical levels, it wasn't. But um, that, that, for instance, we did, did uh, the, the straight track. And then the drummer, Dreshen, he was called Dreshen Thieker. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's a great story how he got his name, but I won't tell you that. Is. <laughs> uh, but, but he just stood there and he said, and he was dressed in an outrageous fashion. And uh, so he said, uh, right, you got to do uh, a backwards kick drum we want on this. And and it was early days with experimental, and so Lambert said, "Oh, and how do you think we're going to do that, you psychedelic <laughs> gypsy?" <laughs> so it's like, "Oh, all right." Um, and Jason said, "You just put that track on backwards and get it going now," and then played the the drum normally, but the sound came out. <laughs> instead of boosh, yeah. boosh. and so that's where at the, the last probably 35 seconds or 40 seconds of the single have that sound and then there were various other things in there uh, sonically that carried it in a way that just had uh, a fantastic energy to it fantastic. and uh yeah, and, and so when, when we put it out, we knew it was good and different. But, of course, you couldn't, you couldn't say, oh, yes, it's got, going to be, you know, number <laughs> one. You're like, uh, it stands a chance of getting somewhere, you know. <laughs> and, of course, our stage act was already uh, kind of famous and uh, because we'd done an American tour as well before the Fire album. And before fire came out, and uh, so we knew that we had an audience. But as for the vast audience, you had to have to have a number one hit, you know, and and to have it sell all around the world in large numbers. That was not a thing you you, you conceived. Really, you didn't. No. We we conceived that maybe in the places we'd played, people would buy it. Uh, and we were astonished when it did get up there. Yeah. Absolutely and, phenomenal. And we, 
we had all those, you know, the DJs that helped. Uh, Hendrix went around and uh, the, what were called in those stations, the days, the black stations, and he he threw it on the table and said, play this. And so they did. And, of course, I was wearing makeup, so nobody knew who I was or what I looked like. But if Hendrix said play it, they'd play it. And and uh, so it, it sold in vast quantities in markets that would norm. And, and actually, when Lambert and Stamp went over there, they um, they first presented it to the underground stations because they thought, oh, well, it's underground, bound to play it. They said, nah, no. Not to our, not our audience over here isn't going to buy that in America, you know, basically. And uh, so, so Lambert went to the uh, the the more middle of the road commercial stations and said, uh, "We've got this uh, novelty record." <laughs> And so they promoted it as a novelty record, <laughs> and of course, then then it got out on the radio, and then the uh, the the perception of it in those days, uh, where in America, you know, religion is still a very yes. uh, immediate topic of conversation, and so um, when they heard that, they were burning it and all of this, and. Um, so it it just got to be a, a note, and of course, they were they were playing it in. Um, there was there was one guy we knew who had been uh, invalided out of Vietnam, and he said that in the uh, the time of the war, in the front line, the, the people um, finally got the. The government to send them down giant PAs, giant PA equipment yeah. to drown out the sounds of the bombs coming in, you know. And um, they used uh, initially, I don't know, you know, eight or ten tracks, and fire was one of the tracks they used to drown out the sound uh, so that they could not go crazy with with the uh the tension and the you know whatever else so it it went all over the place that record um at a time when in france of course there was the uh the revolution came and uh yeah it, it was a, a record of that time Yes, absolutely. It was an incredible hit, as you say. It was number one here. It was, I think, it was number two in America. It was just behind the Beatles or something like that. So it's not, it's not a bad band to be stuck behind. To be fair, it's not like it's Mr. Blobby or Joe Dolce or something. <laughs> um, but you mentioned Pete Townsend worked on the track. Jimi Hendrix helped pedal the, the promote the, the record for you as well. Now, just quickly touching on Jimmy, if you don't mind. Now, you guys um, were friends and you, you jammed together quite a lot, didn't you? Wasn't there a story about how you almost ended up in a band together as well? Yes, it, it was uh, on reflection. It was set up by Chris Stamp, who was co-manager with uh, Kit Lambert of, of ourselves and The Who. And, of course, Henry's came out on track records. So there was a point at which uh, Jimmy, he wanted to go further. 
he'd come to a certain point. He was experimenting with, uh, you know, all the electronics, but he wanted to go further. And he wanted a multimedia show with projections on the big screen. And he wanted uh, Vincent Crane on keyboard. He wanted the experience. And then he wanted, he didn't like his singing at that time. So he wanted me to sing and to be the dramatic figure because he wanted to make the music dramatic. He wanted to have some classical music involved, uh, you know, samplings that would be called samples now. But, of course, in those days, they'd have to play it through a tape recorder. Um, And uh, this big sound, and it was, you know, his way of, you know, go bigger. Yeah. <laughs> involved more more um, of the the media of the day and um so we we were beginning that when uh Vincent committed himself in the end to Bandstead which was sort of a uh, a place that looked after your mental states you know and, and so he was in there for oh several months and okay. um that kind of put the, 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 if you like, the blank on it from the point of view of we would have had to wait and find yeah. someone else who had the capacity to have the same kind of mood with Vincent, play in the same way. And um, so I began to think, well, I'd, I'd like to develop my own style uh, if I'm not going to be with uh, Vincent in there, having that and of course it it was a great uh, a great experience one uh, to sing with uh, Jimmy and and to go down to uh, say the scene club in uh, yeah. New York and Steve Paul's scene it was called and to uh, you know do a, a two hour jam four times in a week and just throw away all concepts of any numbers we knew. Just everything came out in the moment, fresh, and the amount of energy was just ginormous. And, and of course, for him, he was enjoying just doing the, the guitar and uh, testing me. Can he go up here? I go, yeah, look. <laughs> and... and uh, and we we ended up in some very strange musical places and but the the I remember one of the audience coming up afterwards and saying that that was a sheer festival of joy. Wow. Yeah, we we managed to connect <laughs> with with uh, the audience and that would have been an uh, amazing band I think in the terms of all the other super groups that that were put together and uh shame a real shame well he he after that decided that um he would go the opposite direction formed the the trio the blues trio and uh went right back to his roots and still found it as a progress of his own perception of the blues and everything it was a, a nothing but a good experience except for what then happened with Vincent. 
Look, Arthur, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I could chat with you all day, but uh, I know you're probably gagging for a cup of tea after your journey back. But uh, best of luck with the new album, Monsters Ball, and uh, I recommend everyone to check that album out and to check out your, your newly recent album as well, The, the Long, Long uh, Road. It's, it's definitely worth checking out as well. So, Arthur, thank you so much yeah. for being with us. Yeah, we also have uh, the, the new uh, multimedia show called The Human Perspective. Um, this is uh, with my my beautiful life partner and manager, Claire Waller. And she also is the creative director of this and and has been the one who is the, the sort of arbiter of the taste for the visual imagery, uh, for the way that mixes with the sound imagery, for the way that, that the whole of the perception of myself as uh, some kind of artist is put together. And so this show has uh, a phenomenal uh, visual side. And it also, it has sort of pieces from different parts of my career, but it's made into a kind of story. Okay. And the, the band that uh, plays that live, and uh, it's a phenomenal band. On uh, bass is Jim Mortimore. Then uh, on drums is Sam Walker, who um, is quite an amazing drummer and also is uh, currently finishing off uh, a film about my career. Yeah. So uh, we, we've had 200 hours of interviewing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> of which we, we may have got, you know, in the end you get 30 minutes of, of text out of that. Um, and then uh, on, on keyboards and uh, guitar is uh, Dan Smith. So that our sound, although it's only three, is, is enormous and goes yeah. into many different uh, musical backgrounds. And then it's, it's tied with the, the visuals in a certain way. And it's, it's really what the... Kingdom Come Band was aiming for, but we didn't have the technology, and now we've got the technology. So, yeah, and so if, if you see that anywhere near you, please come and have a look. Definitely do. And can I, can I pick you up on the, the, the video thing there? I mean, the, the story of your, of your life. Give us a little bit more information about that. Is that, in the, is that close to completion, or, or what was happening with that? It's been 10 years in the making, so it's changed its perspective as we went along, mm -hmm. you know, yep. uh, things have developed, uh, life has changed, uh, living places have changed, etc., and the music has changed. So um, the film has had to develop. And it's uh, a story called uh, Everything Is Now, and even that, by the time we come out, may have, may have changed. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's really a, a looking at uh, the life and the music. And you mentioned there was hundreds of hours worth of, of interview footage. Is there much archive footage as well? There is, yes. There is enough of that and, and including in the archive footage, uh, you know, conversations with Alice Cooper and uh, various other people, bits of filming that, yeah, you can't get anywhere else. So, uh, yeah, it's it's. I think it'll be good. 
Sounds fascinating. Absolutely. Is there any idea on when we could finally get to see it? I know it's 10 years in the making, but but when when will we get a chance to have a look? Well, we're hoping um, possibly at the latest next spring. Oh. So it's not far away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've you, waited 10 well, years. We can wait till next spring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, only a small bit of it as it's all, you know, got to be edited and everything. And uh, it's it's not just the, isn't this great artist type thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, brilliant, Arthur. We look forward to seeing that and we look forward to catching you on the road and we look forward to buying your new music. You're a busy man for, for someone that's, what, 80 years old now. It's incredible. You're still I... so busy. Yes, it's because I, I uh, follow the path of the sheep. <laughs> it's the way to be. It is the way to be. It's an absolute pleasure chatting <laughs> with you, Arthur. Thank you very much for joining us on Vintage And Empire. thank you very much. The wonderful Arthur Brown there. Please do check out that spookingly monstrous record, Monster's Ball. It's a fantastic collection of musicians, some great song choices and top, top production as well. Get your hands on a physical copy or give it a stream on the usual places. Well, that's it for today's show then. I do hope you enjoyed that interview. Remember, if you're not listening to this episode on the Vintage Rock Pod feed, then please do a search for it on your podcast app and follow or subscribe, whatever it is, on whatever terminology it is on that one. Look for the Vintage Rock Pod channel so you don't miss any of the episodes that are released every single day, 30 plus a month except February, obviously, when it's only 28. Obviously, everything for the classic rock fan. Check out Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. The channel is growing big time. Hit the community tab to get involved in the daily polls on there as well. All a lot of fun, and you can see all the wonderful interviews in video form on there too. Arthur Brown one going up shortly. Well, that's it for me, though. This week's big interview show has been fascinating. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back tomorrow, though, with another This Day Rocks, one of those short daily on this day sort of things. So remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. Take care.